This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Lens Me Your Ears. This is a film podcast where we tend to look at new movies in cinemas and then compare them with older films in the same genre or uh, connected to uh, director, filmmaker, writer, actor. Uh, but this is a little different today. We are doing our second episode of Off the Shelf, where we look at films we have in our libraries to introduce to one another, maybe films that neither of us have seen. Uh, my name is Karsten Knox. I'm a film writer here in Halifax. I've got a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find it at halifaxbloggers.ca. And my name is Stephen Cook. I'm an arts writer here in Halifax at the Chronicle Herald. And uh, you can find me on Twitter at ns underscore s-c-o-o-k-e. And uh, today we're talking about America Lost and Found, the BBS story. This is a box set from Criterion Collection, and it looks at uh, a number of films from the late 60s, early 70s that were key to the development of cinema in America in the 70s, and uh, the many of them we have not seen, so we're really looking forward to talking about them with you today. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears, and as Karsten mentioned at the top of the show, normally we take a look at a new film in theaters and then connect it to other titles of a similar genre or star, or director, or what have you, and uh, and tightly weave together the cinematic universe. But but we're tired of playing by the rules and being hassled by the man. Uh, so <laughs> even if we are the man, even if we are the man, this uh, this episode is actually kind of a sequel. Uh, to something we call Off the Shelf, where, of course, Karsten and I both collect a lot of stuff in physical media still. And uh, there's a number of things you can't get any other way uh, unless you resort to devious means. And uh, and so, of course, as a result, Karsten has stuff on his shelves that I've never seen. And I have stuff on my shelf that uh, he's never seen. But this week, we picked a box set from Criterion where... There was stuff that we both needed to investigate from that. Yeah. So we actually owned the same box set, but there were titles in it that I was more familiar with than Karsten and vice versa. And so we thought it'd be fun to kind of finally get our money's worth out of this thing. Did you did you get it during one of the sales? Because that's what happened. Probably. Yeah. I mean, uh, generally with a Criterion collection box set, uh, it's best to wait for... Uh, either Criterion itself or a certain major online book and um, other stuff retailer <laughs> that shall remain nameless. An American uh, one. An American one. Not yeah. not not the big A, but uh, but another one. Um, to have a, it's sort of biannual uh, half price sale. <laughs> it's, 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 it's Christmas for n- movie nerds. And, yeah, and um, otherwise, the, I mean, full credit to Criterion for the good work they do, but their, their prices are high. And uh, it's, yeah. not, it's not too often I'll invest in a Criterion film unless I find it used somewhere. Uh, well, a lot and of that's has, even then. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think it has to do with uh, the high amount of work they put into the, the, uh, the projects and the low margins. <laughs> yes, yes. We've actually devoted one of our episodes to the Criterion yes. Collection, uh, which uh, anyone can go back and, uh, and listen to. And once in a while they have to put out you know, say a, a, a version of Armageddon to pay for, you know, any number of uh, Czechoslovakian art films. So, you know, it, it all balances out in the end, I'm sure. And we're happy to support them in our own small, um, miserly way. <laughs> but, uh, but, but you know, I, I don't think I've ever really been disappointed with one of their releases. Uh, I was disappointed that I didn't get the new Godzilla box set. Uh, it's, during, not, it's not too late, is it? It's not too late, but, I, but in the last uh, half-price sale, uh, yeah. my order got canceled. 
due to demand. So. Oh, bummer. Yeah. So even though it was still available, they just weren't going to order any new ones. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that is that is really steep. You're talking about a lot, like more than, I don't know how many movies are in that set, but it's it's large. Uh, I think it's like 24 Godzilla movies, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Something, <laughs> something maybe, maybe not quite that many, but it goes from like mid-50s to, to early 70s. And uh, there's a couple of editions of them that uh, movies that got chopped and diced and redubbed in the States that have never gotten their due that turn out to be a lot better um, when you actually see the original versions. Uh, King Kong versus Godzilla, for example, is... I actually saw it on the Great Money movie when I was a kid out of Bangor, Maine, and it the dubbing was so bad it made my eyes water because it was just so <laughs> bad. And and uh, the, the plot made no sense. As it turns out, if you watch it in its original uncut and Japanese-language version, uh, there's there's a lot of satire of the meat. There's there's actually a lot more going on in that film than just two giant monsters slugging it out, and uh, which is often the case with many of those films. So that's that's why they they were giving them their due in that box set. That's you cool. Know. Well, and I, you know, at some point, hopefully, we'll get what we'll do is we'll get that box yes. set, and then we can talk about it. Exactly. So, the, the <laughs> or set, one of us. Yes, will. <laughs> exactly. Um, I'm, but I mean, that I think as as the whole physical media thing starts to dwindle, uh, it's special projects like this that will still get people to shell out if you give them that value-added thing. And, and they've done stuff. They, they, they did a recent Bergman set, which I got, which was quite impressive in its, um, in its scope. And it had a lot of films that had been otherwise unavailable uh, in physical form um, all brought together in one place. And, and uh, I got the uh, complete Zatoichi, the Blind Swordsman box set, which wow. is pretty impressive. I've, I've made it about a third of the way through, and I've had it for four years now. So, I, you know... Th- I need to take a weekend and just sit down and watch a bunch of blind swordsman movies because they're they're all pretty amazing and they get more extreme as they go along too. So, uh, uh, the, you know, and, and the, there was the the baby cart, uh, the the lone lone wolf and cub, I guess, is right sure. um, set that they put out sort of as a companion to that. So that you know they've been doing some interesting stuff with collections, um, as well as doing their fine work with individual titles. But but this one was a really really cool uh, set um, looking at sort of the, the the short and turbulent life of an independent film studio that kind of turned Hollywood on its ear, uh, BBS, which um, is named after the three guys that ran it. Um, Bob Rafelson, a director who, uh, you know, went on to to greater success um, with, uh, with uh, an interesting career afterwards that did not follow a predictable path. Uh, he only made films when he wanted to and picked the subject matter that appealed to him and was still kind of able to work within the Hollywood system, um, but on his own terms. Um, and then uh, Bert Schneider, which was a, a friend of his, and together those two sort of came into prominence when they created the Monkees TV series for Screen Gems, uh, the TV subsidiary of Columbia Pictures. And then the S stands for uh, Schneider's uh, longtime friend, Steve Blauner, who joined them um, he actually was working at Screen Gems, and then he joined them in this venture once the Monkees had run its course. So that, that's the uh, the three names in, in BBS, and and they produced uh, a number of feature films, uh, starting with their first uh, post Monkees effort, which is in fact a film about the Monkees <laughs> called Head. Uh, that was a flop, but they still had enough money left over from from uh, the success of the Monkees through the merchandising and the music and the royalties and all that, uh, they pumped that money into Easy Rider, uh, directed by their friend Dennis Hopper, um, which in uh, one of the uh, features, I think the, the, I think it's in the documentary 
on uh, the BBS studio, um, they basically said that they were putting it all on red with, with Easy Rider because <laughs> they, they, they were just basically sending Dennis Hopper and uh, Peter Fonda and um, Jack Nicholson out into the wilds of, of America to, to come back with a movie that, uh, that really did completely change Hollywood overnight. I feel um, like the success of Easy Rider got them the kind of carte blanche to make a bunch of other projects. Exactly, because, yeah. And, and the, the studio heads were so baffled by this, the fact that it was such a huge success. I think it, it really rocked the foundations of what the studios thought they knew about what the audiences wanted. And so they were like, well, these young whippersnappers with their long hair and their hippie ideas, they're the ones who have the idea. They, they know. They know what the audiences want. So we'll just give them a lot of money exactly. in the hope that they can reproduce this kind of audience success. Uh, sadly, even though they made a lot of really interesting films, uh, they didn't all have that kind of zeitgeist uh, impact. No, but the success of Easy Rider pretty much set all the studios scrambling to try and copy its success because of course nothing succeeds like uh imitation <laughs> in yeah. hollywood so you get things like uh, like 20th century fox produces vanishing point um the kind of um elliptical uh existential chase movie with uh with um barry um not barry nelson uh, Newman. Barry Newman, uh, you know, racing a Dodge Challenger across the great American wasteland. Um, you get um, Universal Pictures uh, produced a number of kind of indie films, uh, including like Tulane Blacktop, directed by Monty Hellman, is probably the most famous of that bunch. Um, you know, and th these films actually play pretty well today. Uh, in, in fact, some of them better than Easy Rider does. Um, but, it, you know, it was pretty short-lived. And, and then eventually along came Jaws uh, in 1975 and everything Everything changed back to kind of the way it was, but uh, but you know for that that late '60s up to the mid '70s period, there's some pretty interesting stuff coming out from the Hollywood studios, which was had not previously been the case. Um, BBS, uh, I'll just list through the films and then we'll go back and start talking about them. But then came Five Easy Pieces, directed by Bob Rafelson, um, another another hit, critically, commercially, artistically, uh, and uh, and then they, were, they went into the weeds a bit. They funded some some. Not vanity projects, but some interesting films that didn't catch on with audiences. One was uh, Drive, he said, uh, which is, uh, I think, the first film directed by Jack Nicholson, who does not appear in the film. I think he's spotted in one scene. They, they went and filmed a campus riot in Eugene, Oregon, where they were filming, and he can be spotted in the chaos of the filming of that scene. But, uh, but he decided to stay behind the camera and... Uh, the leads went to a couple of young unknown actors and then Bruce Dern as a basketball coach. Um, a Safe Place, directed by Henry Jaglum, a very um, uh, dreamlike and uh, fragmented narrative about a woman who's having a, a breakdown. Uh, and then uh, they kind of finish off uh, on a more positive note with uh, The Last Picture Show, which is uh, directed by Peter Bogdanovich. Uh, it's a little different. It was filmed in Texas. It's uh, it's a little bit outside of the BBS kind of realm in a sense because it's kind of it's really Bogdanovich's show all the way. Um, they just were basically backing it. it. It doesn't have the same kind of feel. It's got that. Uh, it's got a more nostalgic feel, uh, and it's also kind of a masterpiece. So uh, you know, it, it was another feather in the cap for BBS. And then uh, the King of Marvin Gardens, uh, which was not a success, but is a film that I. I find it plays pretty well today. We watched it uh, just last night, actually, before uh, taping this this morning um, here at the uh, luxurious CKDU studios. And 
that was one that is one of those films I'd always been meaning to get to. I, I feel like I'd read a ton about it. I feel like I kind of knew it anyway. Um, but it was nice to actually like just sit down and watch it from stem to stern and uh, and really take it in. And uh, again, star, directed by Ray Filson, um, starring Bruce Dern and Jack Nicholson, BBS uh, old friends, as uh, two brothers with a fairly... Um, fractious relationship yeah, uh, and uh, it's all set against the background of decaying Atlantic City and we'll talk about that later in the show. Yeah, it's uh, it's one of my favorites and I'll tell you how I discovered it in high schools because I became really interested in Jack Nicholson's career and oh, so yeah. I went back into I went to visited uh, you know video stores looking for for VHS uh, of, of films that he acted in and uh, found my way back into the early 70s and late 60s and uh, interestingly Nicholson and Rafelson were buddies. Uh, Rafelson, Nicholson called Rafelson a curly. Uh, <laughs> Nicholson seemed to have a nickname for pretty much everybody he worked with. Uh, but uh, he had been at that time, you know, struggling as a character actor in in exploitation films. He was in the original um, uh, Little Shop of Horrors. But he had, I mean, he was in his he'd like early 30s, I guess, in the late 60s. So he, he you know, he had he decided, he was sort of thinking, oh, I'm probably going to be a writer or a director. And then he got together with Rafelson to do Head, the Monkees uh, film. And I don't think that Nicholson was particularly a fan of the Monkees, but, you know. No, not at all, actually. He, he, he kind of just went with it. And I think he was encouraged by the fact that um, uh, the Monkees were basically interested in throwing a hand grenade into their image. I mean, if if you were a, if you were a fan of their show, which I think was aimed at a very young audience, and then you, you know, if those parents whose kids said, "I want to go see the Monkees movie," went to see the Monkees movie, I can't imagine what they thought that weekend that it opened because this is like, it is satiric. It's it's not you know it's crazy. Uh, it's it, it, you know, the opening segment has them jumping off a bridge, basically metaphorically committing suicide. And then they cheerlead the war, word war and intercut actual footage from Vietnam, including the notorious execution of that Viet Cong soldier. Everyone is familiar with the photograph and the image of that. Uh, but it is, I can't imagine what kids must have thought. And parents, they must have been outraged. Yeah, it was the fact that there's actual footage of an execution in the middle of this film uh, about a pop group that had initially been named aimed at preteens uh, is just it boggles the mind like you just try to imagine that happening with one direction or <laughs> <laughs> or something like that. Even just, like the Spice Girls. Like Spice Girls had a movie in the late 90s. Can you imagine what they, if, that, <laughs> if they had chosen to do that? Well, the Spice World is kind of a satire. But no, there's no snuff footage in Spice World, <laughs> I, I, I regret to say. But um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, Nicholson had been kind of kicking around Hollywood. He'd been involved with Roger Corman on one level or another um, in some projects. And uh, so, I, you know, and I don't know if some of that was filmed on the Columbia backlot or whatever, but... But obviously, I think Raffleson liked the Corman ethos of, of getting your film made as quickly and cheaply as possible. Um, and so I, I think that was a factor in, in kind of teaming up with Nicholson because he's seen how Corman works. And, they, you know, they thought, well, you know, if you, if you have a good script um, to begin with and you can just, like, push ahead and, and get this done. And because head, it's funny, I, I learning about head, I realized it was filmed in a fairly short time, which is funny to me because it just seems so expansive with all the different settings and all the cutting, um, playing with genre yeah, and, and music. Yeah. And they go from locations like, like the, the white sands desert to, to, you know, various backlots and things like that. They're jumping all over the place. And, 
And um, but but it was done fairly quickly and cheaply. That I guess the band was sort of in on the writing of it. They don't get a credit for it, um, and nobody in the band seems to be that upset about that fact. But but I, th- I think they basically patched it together over a weekend in Ojai, California, possibly under the influence of something or other. And uh, and that's kind of what you get. It is very trippy. It is very surreal. Um, if you watch some of the monkeys episodes, they, they incorporate some of the, some of the sets and ideas from the show, but then they completely tear it apart with, with all these crazy celebrity cameos. Annette Funicello shows up at one point. In, uh, Victor Mature. I mean, Victor Mature. They is, probably could get him pretty cheaply, though. I think his star oh, luster yeah, by had, the late sixties is pretty much done. And and apparently he was really he knew they were kind of not making fun of his image, but he seemed to be good natured about uh, about the way he was being utilized in the film. He's kind of he's he's almost he's like this towering figure. I, I don't know if he's meant to represent old Hollywood, and and the monkeys are like the youth. Uh, going up against the old establishment or what. I mean, you can read so much into this. I think ultimately it's really meant to be nonsense, but but it is fun to kind of watch it and play around with all the different meanings. You got uh, character actor Timothy Carey, who worked with, uh, he's in a couple of Kubrick films, including Paths of Glory, and then he shows up in beach party movies. P- possibly one of the strangest careers in Hollywood, so it, it only makes sense that he'd be in head. Um, he shows up as kind of a weird Western villain who just gets more and more absurd as, as the film goes along. And, uh, and you know, the, the monkeys, uh, Davy Jones, uh, Mike Nesmith, Peter Tork, and Mickey Dolan seem to, to be in on the joke. Like, uh, in, in later years, they'd kind of be a little derisive, I think, when talking about the movie, because it wasn't a commercial success, um, you know, considering how they had an anti-marketing campaign that didn't show, you know, there's, there are posters and, and trailers and TV ads that don't even mention the monkeys, so it's... You know, the, the, they they kind of defied you to go see this movie in a way, um, and uh, and so people stayed away in droves for the most part. But 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 it is it's it's very colorful. It's very funny. It's very fast moving. There's lots of surprises. Um, I love the fact that at one point Mickey Dolan's he's he's trapped. He's wandering in the desert and he comes across a Coca Cola machine, but it's empty. And then uh, just by chance, an Italian tank battalion comes along and he gets the tank and blows up the Coca-Cola machine. Um, and then also and in uh, they, they shoot up a Coca-Cola machine in Dr. Strangelove. And both of those films were produced by Columbia Pictures, which at some point in the 70s was partly either in whole or part bought out by Coca-Cola. So I don't oh. know. I, th- I, f- I found that. I guess they weren't too happy about having one of their machines blown up in a couple of their films. So I don't know if that was revenge or something, but, <laughs> but yeah, the, for a while there, Columbia Pictures was owned, uh, it was a Coca-Cola company. So mm-hmm. I, I find that kind of amusing. But this, this um, uh, I want to mention that uh, there's a lot of, of course, additional documentary footage in this box set on many of these discs. Oh yeah, it's, and it's well put together. It's really great to be able to hear about, you know, interviews with all the creatives who are still around about what they were up to at the time. At one point, Bob Rafelson says they had this whole plan that uh, for marketing Easy Rider, they were going to say, from the people who gave you Head. Uh, <laughs> but unfortunately, Head didn't do very well, so they couldn't use that as a springboard to market yeah, this other They, they were wise enough to know that wouldn't be the, the best approach. Um, <laughs> but but Head is, is amazing. It's, uh, it's a deconstruction of pop music that I think has aged, plays better now than it would have in the 60s. I remember seeing it, I saw it at Wormwood. Somehow they, Wormwood's got a 35 millimeter print of it when they were back in the Kyber building and they showed it. I don't know if it was like they were doing a series of cult films or what it was, but, but, um, so it was a beautiful print 
you know, obviously it's not a film that gets run a whole lot. So it was gorgeous looking copy of the film. I'd only seen a couple of the episodes of the show at that point. So I wasn't really hundred percent sure what to expect. I'd read a little bit about the movie, but mostly I'd read that it's kind of a bomb and, and kind of nonsensical. And I went and I was blown away by this movie because I kind of got exactly what they were doing. Um, you know, in a way that the the Beatles only kind of wished they could have done, because you know John Lennon used to joke about making the Beatles implode in some spectacular way instead of going out with a whimper, which is kind of what they did. Um, but if you watch the later episodes of the show, the last few episodes of the Monkeys TV show uh, are kind of pointing the direction towards this. And in fact, uh, there's one with like Frank Zappa comes on as a guest star, and they destroy, they play a musical piece, he, him and Nesmith. Uh, destroy a car in B flat or something like that. Uh, and then they have like Tim Buckley, the the folk artist, comes on and sings "Song to the Siren," a, you know, an artist that probably nobody in their viewing audience would have heard of. And they, you know, they put him front and center uh, on on an episode of The Monkees. And and then the very last episode is called "The Frodus Caper." I think it's directed by Dolans. I could be wrong. I think it's directed by one of them anyway. And it's just complete mayhem, just making fun of television and how it makes you kind of a mindless zombie. So. And Frodus was their code word for weed. Exactly. So yeah. that was that was the in-joke. And I uh, just, you know, so that leads into head very well. But the, the movie, um, you know, has, and it has some great musical numbers uh, that presage. I mean, the Monkees TV show already kind of presaged the, vi- the music video era, but but head takes it over the top with much better produced sequences and and uh, and pretty trippy songs. Um not too much to say about Easy Rider. I mean, everyone knows this is probably maybe the best-known zeitgeist film from this box set. Uh, I, I've seen it a few times. I really enjoy the music from it still. In some ways, it's so dated because they were because uh, of, of when it was made and how it was made. Uh, but you know, the it was such a success that it, it was so effective and and. Uh, you know, and I, I watching it again, I realized that uh, it does have some pretty uh, clear ideas about the way America was run at the time. When when uh, Jack Nicholson, who became kind of a star as a result of the film, uh, shows up as a supporting character, George Hansen, the kind of straight guy who who gets swept up in the excitement of Captain America and Billy, uh, the the two characters driving across the country. He he says he can get them out of trouble provided they haven't killed anybody, at least <laughs> not anybody white. And uh, it that struck me today as being like, oh right, you know they they knew what America looked like at the time, and and I think the message of the movie is that freedom, that the whole thing is is talking about freedom. I mean, they, they start yeah. by selling cocaine, uh, but that comes at a huge price paid by those who want to change things. It's it's actually kind of pessimistic about the possibility of this kind of freedom, the outlaw kind. Uh, it's sort of, so in that way. It's it's a western. It's both an ode to the '60s as well as an epitaph for the spirit of the '60s in some ways. Yeah, I think they even show them driving through Monument Valley mm-hmm. at one point, yeah. know, which is a nod to you know, obviously all those great John Ford westerns. But they're they're also thumbing their nose at, at Hollywood and classic Hollywood in a way, um, which of course there was a huge hit at Cannes Film Festival, and that started. That's really what got the the, the steamroller going for Easy Rider. I think it cost they, it cost like seven hundred thousand and wound up making like hundred times its profit back or something like that. But that basically that, that fueled the fire for the films that followed. And, um, and, uh, we're, we're really rolling through these. So we'll, we'll come back and talk about, uh, where BBS went next with five easy pieces. 
So you're listening to Lens Me Your Ears, the film podcast, and uh, we're talking about a box set called America Lost and Found, the BBS story, a group of films made in the late 60s and early 70s. Uh, and uh, we're going to start with, uh, on this segment, uh, talking about five easy pieces, and we're also, I think, going to talk about Drive, He Said, and A Safe Place. Uh, five easy pieces is... I think still The King of Marvin Gardens is probably my favorite of these films that we're talking about, but Five Easy Pieces is close. It, it, it's uh, directed by Rob Rafelson, written by Rafelson and Carol Eastman, and uh, cinematography by Laszlo Kovacs, uh, or Kovacs? Kovacs? Um, now, when I was a teenager, and I mentioned going through Nicholson's movies, this film really made an impact on me. It's about Bobby Arroyka Dupia. He's a guy who walked away from privilege to be a redneck in oil fields. Uh, he has a very loose relationship with commitment. He's competitive. He has no patience. And he's kind of an ass to the people around him. He thinks he's smarter than the next guy. And, you know, I, you kind of wonder why you, I, one would identify with him so much as a teenager. Uh, <laughs> I, think, I think looking back at, it, at his character, I, I really related to him. But it was those, those kind of teenage kind of struggle between what I felt like I wanted to be and should be and then rebelling against that and all of those kind of complicated feelings that any teenager has. And I think this is kind of like a... Um, uh, like a catcher in the rye, kind exactly. Of a movie. You took like, the words out of my mouth. There. Like if you, if you, uh, seeing it now, I can, I can have a lot more perspective. Uh, but especially seeing what a, what a pain this guy is and how nasty he is, especially to the Karen Black character. Uh, the crux of the story is he, he, um, he finds out his father is sick, so he goes up to visit his father lives somewhere I think in Oregon or his family lives north of where they're living yeah I think it's in Oregon although I believe they filmed in Vancouver Island um, yeah and uh, and then it's about the, the people they meet on the way and his relationship with his girlfriend who he treats terribly and then the, the last third of the film is basically him connecting with his family and uh, with the people who are living in that house and and we find out that you know he's kind of he was kind of a super talented uh uh, kid who just walked away from it all, and that's kind of his his uh, mo is to whenever he deals, he can't deal with stuff. He just walks away, um, and his restlessness and his intensity. He's, he's, he, Nicholson is great in the role because he's so charismatic, he's so fun to watch. But then it, 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 this tension between that and and the kind of decisions he makes and the way he treats people around him. Yeah, he's kind of up there with like James Dean and Rebel Without a Cause. Uh, Ferris Bueller, maybe, um, and you meant Holden Caulfield and Catcher in the Rye. Those, those characters that seem kind of appealing, and 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 when you're saying your late teens or early twenties, and then when uh, a couple more decades go by, and you're kind of like looking at this character with like, well, I thought this guy was cool or whatever. But but I find I find the saving grace here, of course, is that Nicholson, you know, is. Uh, is so charismatic that he, you know, later, late in the film, he does kind of prove he does have a soul, um, to, to a, maybe even a greater degree than those other characters that I mentioned, um, that he does have some feeling in him and that he's not a complete jerk. But then of course he kind of returns to form, um, right before the credits roll. But, but, uh, you know, you, you feel a conflict within him. You see the talent that he threw away, you know, he's got a, a talented sister and, and, um, you know, and his like I don't I don't know if they'd say what the father did, but I get the feeling that he was either like a musician or a composer or mm -hmm. conductor or something. He had, yeah, he was a man of prominence before I, I'm guessing a stroke um, kind of laid him laid him low. So 
and and so that leaving it making it difficult for him to kind of maybe dredge up the past and and deal with some some buried pain, long buried pain that he's been mean to get out. So that, you know, there's, there's a lot of baggage going into that reunion with the family in, in the final part of the film because it just I, I love the contrast between the early parts set in Bakersfield. It's industrial. It's grimy. It's in the oil fields. You know, he's got these kind of rowdy friends. Um, you know, the, the, they go bowling and drink beer and they're, they're, they're roughnecks. And, and then you find out that his, his, you know, there's this complete other side to him. Uh, and, uh, you know, I love the contrast uh, in, in the, I don't know if it's in the commentary or in one of the other pieces, but Rifleson talks about how he always finds it funny that the most famous scene is the one where they're in the diner mm-hmm. and he's kind of given the waitress a hard time because he can't get a piece of toast. <laughs> so he asks for the toasted chicken salad sandwich and tells her to hold the chicken salad between her knees, um, you know, which is, you know, it, it's it, when you're at one point, it seems like an act of rebellion. And then now it just totally feels like a jerk move, but, but it's still an iconic scene, but it's early in the film. And, and as he, as Rafelson points out, it has nothing to do with what the film is actually about, but it's just this one thing. And he says it's actually based on a real incident that happened at either a club or a restaurant in LA okay. when it, where a bunch of actors were hanging out and then we're told to leave and Nicholson swept, had just arrived. So he <laughs> cleared the table and, uh, they just took that and used it. Um, I think some credit should go to Carol Eastman who wrote the screenplay. Absolutely. Um, um not a successful screenwriter per se, uh, worked again with Raffleson on Man Trouble with Nicholson and Ellen Barkin. Oh yeah, that's a, that's not worth going back to. Not a great film. No. Uh, so this is kind of like the one standout in Eastman's filmography. Um, but you know, not a bad one to have. Yeah. Um, and, uh, when I was watching this and also King of Marvin Gardens, I, my brain was, the wheels were kind of turning. I was thinking, I bet Wes Anderson has watched both of these films a ton. Yeah. (laughs) Cause I feel, I feel like the family in Five Easy Pieces is a, is a big influence on say Royal Tenenbaums mm-hmm. among other things. Yeah. And, um, the relationship between the brothers and King of Marvin Gardens just made me think of Bottle Rocket. Um, so, it, you know, clearly these are films that have had an influence. I mean, obviously the Anderson films have a different tone and everything, but you can, you can definitely feel the roots of, of those films in, uh, in these particular movies, uh, directed by Rafelson. Yeah. And I really liked, uh, I like the way they look, obviously the Blu-ray transfers are just exquisite in these, in these, uh, criterion set. Uh, the, um, uh, there's a quiet moments where you see Bobby walking around under a gorgeous blue sky the the, the he um uh, Rafelson thinks about the framing of the imagery in a way that is uh is gorgeous like these these characters kind of set in the landscape uh in a way that I really really like uh and he does this again and again he does it in King of Marvin Gardens as well um and I, I love the scene where he's um uh, he's in the car drinking with his buddy, and and they're in a traffic jam, and there's honking, and he gets out, <laughs> climbs on the back of a truck where there is a there's an upright piano, and he starts playing the piano, and the truck just drives off, and then he's just he j- gets out in town somewhere, and he just walks around. There's a barber school, and there's just this interesting like uh, divergences here in the story that are really really wonderful. Um, yeah, it's there's a lot of things about the film that do still feel relevant, but but uh, and there's an amazing cast, and this is something else that the BBS films they recast a lot of you see a lot of the same faces uh here you've got lois smith who's gone on to have an amazing career still working uh karen black uh billy Greenbush, sally struthers uh susan anspach these are are really quality character actors from the 70s that are are really great to see and the dad from the waltons
Simpsons. Oh, yeah, there you go. <laughs> um, so let's talk about Drive, he said, from 71. This was Nicholson's chance to direct himself and co-written by Nicholson and uh, Jeremy Larner, who wrote the book that it's based on. It's a story of a couple of college buddies. One is a star basketball player, play, uh, Hector Bloom, played by William Tepper, who's having an affair with an old woman, played by uh, Karen Black. Uh, and the other is Gabriel, uh, played by Michael Margotta, who's an on-campus agitator who may or may not be mentally ill, and he's looking to avoid the draft. Uh, now, Nicholson got all of his buddies on this, including Bruce Dern as a basketball coach, and Robert Town, who, of course, would become one of Hollywood's all-time greats as a screenwriter. Robert Town wrote Chinatown. Um, and Henry Jaglum, who you mentioned earlier, he's had, of course, a long career as an indie filmmaker, uh, and we'll mention him. He directed The Safe Place, the next film we'll talk about. Um, he uh, and Michael Warren is in this as well, who's an actor I recognize from his work on Hill Street Blues. Uh, I, I like this film. I didn't love it. I, it felt like Nicholson getting finally getting his chance to direct. He was throwing everything he had at the sort of uh, stylistic wall, hoping that it would what figuring out what would stick. And uh, you know, it's a it's kind of a relationship movie. It's a political drama about the what happening on college campuses in the late '60s. And it's a sports movie. Uh, I really like the basketball stuff. That that's fun. Clearly, you know Nicholson's been a basketball fan going way back, as we all know now. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think I enjoyed it. I didn't. I, I felt like not everything worked, but uh, but yeah, I did. I did uh, appreciate. What did you think, uh, Stephen? I, I liked the film quite a bit. Um, I've seen a bunch of the other kind of campus uprising films that um, came out around that time, The Strawberry Statement, um, uh, Getting Straight. There's, there's, a, there's one about a radio station. I think it's not RPM. I, I'm trying to remember what it's called, but I think Paul Newman was in that one. And uh, and then there's the <clears throat> Medium Cool. We watched Medium Cool, right? Yeah, yeah, Medium Cool is kind of in the same the same ballpark. Yeah. And uh, Drive, he said, I think was a little late to the game uh, as far as those kinds of uh, stories go. But uh, And I didn't even really know this film existed. I mean, Nicholson only directed three films, uh, he, I guess uh, four if you count his one day of directing on the terror for Roger Corman. But um, but he, after this, he made um, Going South. Going South uh, in the late 70s, I believe, yeah, with I uh, Mary Steenburgen's film debut, I think. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and also John Belushi in a bit part is, I guess, uh, I don't know if he's the sheriff or like the deputy or something. It's a, it, and it's, I think it's a bit of a, I think he's playing a Mexican character, so there's a, <laughs> it's a bit of an off taste about it um, all these years later. But but Nicholson's fun is this roguish guy who basically has to marry Mary Steenburgen in order oh. to escape the noose. And uh, <clears throat> I haven't seen it in many many years, but I, I remember it being kind of funny, not not terribly memorable. And then uh, the two Jakes, um, right? Which I think he had to step in and direct. I can't remember who was. Originally yeah. supposed to do that. Maybe it was Robert Town or May, I think so. Yeah, they <clears throat> it had it was a troubled production uh, as a sequel to a classic film. It's actually worth going back to watch. Maybe one day we'll do a a Nicholson retrospective and watch some of those movies. Yeah, there's certainly a lot of other films we can return to. Um, but uh, you know, I didn't even know this film existed until I saw a poster for it. Uh, I was at a, like a classic film fest. I was going through some posters and I saw a poster for Drive. He said with the the image of um, uh, Tepper holding up an orange. Covering, so he's covering his face with either an orange or a grapefruit, and then you see his big afro sort of sticking out behind it. And instead of film by Jack Nicholson, I'm like, what the heck is this, and why have I never heard of it? And and 
it never came out on VHS as far as I know. And I think this is the first time anyone's really had a chance to have a look at it. And I don't know if that's because there are music rights involved or Nicholson just didn't care enough about it to try and push for it getting a release. Uh, and it probably wouldn't have done very well as a standalone. So a box set like this is perfect for, for a film like Drive, he said, and a safe place to kind of find their niche. And, and, and you know, Criterion probably wanted to do something with those films but didn't feel like they could put them out individually. So this is perfect. Um, you know, it is a product of its time. Uh, some of the acting, especially by the two male leads of the college um, students, uh, it, you know, it's a bit raw. It's I don't think either of them are really professional actors. Um, uh, Teppert, who's the, the, the main character, I, I think he goes on to do a bunch of television after this. Um, Margotta, I don't think, does a whole lot. Um, he plays Gabriel the Radical, who basically, I think he's trying to pretend he's, uh, insane to get out of the draft. Yeah, but, but then, then, but then he actually blows a gasket. He seems and, to. Yeah, and, it's, a, uh, it's it's one of those. It's a catch twenty two kind of story, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. but of course, that film had already come out. So, mm-hmm. I think I think uh, elements of this were, were just all too familiar by the time this movie came out, and uh, I think it didn't do well at Cannes uh, at all. I don't think, and uh, you know, really did not receive much of a reception upon its release. Whatever kind of release it got, I, I don't imagine Columbia put a big push into this title. I mean, Nicholson was, a, you know, becoming a big name at this point, but not that big as he would later become. So, uh, and the same kind of goes for A Safe Place, the Henry Jaglum film, uh, which uh, got a horrible reception yeah, yeah. Um, pretty much everywhere it went. So, I mean, it's probably my least favorite of these ones we're watching. I'm glad to have seen it just as to sort of compare it with the other films, but it, it, it does not, it does not hold up too well. I, I think, and, you know, Jaglin would go on to make better films. I still think his his work is kind of an acquired taste. He's a very idiosyncratic filmmaker with a very specific kind of style. Uh, he often puts himself into his films, which uh, not everyone loves. But um, but this film is based on a play and I'm, that he did off-Broadway, and I guess it's been revived since the film was made. Uh, I'm trying to imagine this as a play. I don't know. Yeah. I, I can't even think. Because it's 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 basically the story of a, of a woman played by Tuesday Weld, um, who changes names throughout the course of the film. I think at, at one point she's Susan, Susan then she's but then Noah. she becomes Noah. Yeah. And there's a lot of Noah Noah's Ark uh, references. And, and she's clearly having some sort of mental breakdown over the course of the film. And, and, and so the, it has this very fractured, time-jumping kind of storyline where at some point she's in therapy, but there's all these, I don't know if they're flashbacks, but the, the film constantly cuts to her wandering around Central Park with Orson Welles. Right. And uh, I don't know if he's like an imaginary figure. Uh, he's always doing magic tricks and, um, you know, talking about the animals in the zoo leading to the, all the Noah illusions. And sometimes he's speaking with a Yiddish accent, uh, for comic effect, I guess. Yeah. And sometimes, yeah, his accent is, was a little uh, unplaceable for me, but yeah, that's probably what it is. And, and a lot of it feels fairly improvised and off the cuff. And, uh, you know, in that regard, some of it feels fresh. Tuesday Weld is great. I mean, she's, She's she holds her own with the part and with what she has to do in the film, but there's some some cutesy end of the '60s kind of aspects about it that that don't hold up terribly well. Yeah. Um, all, a lot of the therapy stuff and 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 so on. But um, but Tuesday Weld is great. Uh, it's worth seeing for her. The Orson Welles stuff is fun. Um, you know, it's fun to see him do his magic act. He clearly enjoyed doing that stuff. And he, he seems to be having fun in, in He's that role. He's perspiring a lot. I noticed <laughs> that in the close-ups on the Blu-ray, you're like, whoa, dude, someone mop his brow. <laughs> Very hot day in Central Park. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think all of his stuff was probably filmed in a day. I'm not sure. And then, and Nicholson shows up in the film. I, I guess he didn't want to be in the film. Um, 
and because uh, at that point, I think his salary after five easy pieces, uh, his salary had gone up considerably, and Jaglin couldn't afford to pay him, but Nicholson said he needed a new color TV, so that was the deal they made. <laughs> and he shows up, uh, ba- basically what we have is um, he plays a former lover of, of Susan slash Noah, who you know, she's clearly carrying a torch for, and he's fond of her, but he's also kind of unreliable. Uh, you know, he's much more romantic, she's much more attracted to him. And then there's a guy, Philip Proctor, um, shows up, uh, he's infatuated with her. He's he comes from a wealthy family. He's fairly stable, but I guess fairly boring uh, as far as she's concerned. And she kind of tolerates him, but eventually just treats him horribly and you know uh, gives him the boot when uh, Nicholson reappears in her life. So that that and that's kind of it. There isn't a whole lot of story going on. It's just watching her going to this kind of spiral, and nobody can seem to help her. Yeah, it could be like a a freak out movie like the ones we talked about. We did a whole episode yeah. of like freak out. This would certainly qualify. You know what else it it's actually kind of cool about the film. I mean, I'm I'm stretching here a little bit because I didn't enjoy it that much, but but it is we did a New York movies and it is like the footage of That's Central true. Park, yeah. the zoo and then footage of their they have a bunch of scenes on a rooftop in the Lower East Side. That's also pretty impressive. Um, it's funny watching these movies back to back over a short period because I feel like the common thread through many of them is that the male character being sort of a restless dreamer, selfish and passionate, and the women have to sort of put up with them, usually to their detriment. Uh, and and female characters have rich internal lives, but they're usually smarter than the guys, but they wind up getting hurt by the men in their lives. Uh, and maybe are better off without them. In this film, it's flipped, wherein Jaglum wanted to write a a story from a woman's perspective, I guess inspired by some of the women he knew in his life. And, uh, you know, she is the driving force in the story, even as she's going through some serious changes. And then the men around her and how she treats them. Uh, yeah, I mean, you know, I think based on this, on this, I mean, I might like to see more of Jaglum's films. Uh, he is had a long career as a filmmaker. You mentioned that. And, uh, and it, I mean, you know, even more. And, it's, and he's still making movies. I, I, I think he's... In some ways, you know, I mean, Nicholson has, we got to assume, is retired by now. He hasn't made a feature film since, I think, 2011. So, so you know, most of these guys are are enjoying their retirement if they're still around. And Jaglum's still out there working. Yeah, and I mean, his later films are interesting. He, he's done a number of films, uh, for the most part, from a women's perspective, uh, at a time when not a lot of other male filmmakers are doing that. He's very interested in female characters and their, their lives and what they have to say. And I, I think that's... One of the the things that makes those films worth watching, and it is certainly something that makes a safe place worth watching. It's also only like ninety or ninety two minutes or something like that, so it's not a big investment in time. And you know, you do get to see you know people like Orson Welles and and uh, and Philip Proctor, who plays sort of the nice guy who smothers her a fair bit. Um, the actor who Philip Proctor uh, is better known as a member of the Firesign Theater comedy troupe, and and I think he gets an end introducing. It's not that he did a ton of acting in movies; uh, those, none of those guys really did. Um, although a bunch of them have done a lot of voiceover work. Um, so it's kind of cool to see him playing a role, if, if you're familiar at all, with the uh, the fairly uh, groundbreaking comedy work of the Firesign Theater, which uh, is worth checking out if you've never checked out some of their uh, albums uh, or records. Uh, I definitely recommend those. Um, uh, maybe, maybe a better way to spend your time than a safe place. Welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. My name is Stephen Cook. I'm Karsten Knox. And this is a uh, be off the shelf, our second off the shelf edition of the show where um, 
in the past, we Karsten picked some titles from my collection that he wanted to see, and I did the same from his uh, selection of, of movies. Um, this time, we're focusing on the American Lost and Found, the BBS story Criterion box set, um, which contains numerous feature films, uh, some of which Karsten was more familiar with than I was, and some of which I was more familiar with than he was. So it's kind of all, it was all in one package, and it was just a nice chance to kind of take this off the shelf and, and um, actually get uh, get something out of our investments in these, this box set from uh, from Criterion. And uh, we're kind of winding down. We're in the last segment, uh, and uh, uh, BBS kind of had a bit of a lull with a couple of minor films that weren't terribly well-received. Um, we just talked about A Safe Place, directed by Henry Jaglum, which was greeted largely with derision and anger, <laughs> um, you know, due to his kind of self-indulgent and and um, avant-garde kind of approach um, to its fairly straightforward story. Uh, it's it's kind of interesting that one of the extras, and I think it's on the A Safe Place disc, is where um, Jaglum appears on a New York, I think it's either a PBS or public access kind of show uh, around the New York Film Festival uh, of that year. I think it's 72 maybe. And um, where the, I guess the only two American films in the festival were A Safe Place and The Last Picture Show. So Bogdanovich... Uh, Peter Bogdanovich, who directed Last Picture Show, was on this TV show with Jaglum, and the host is trying to be kind <laughs> about a safe place, but it's clear that she didn't. She's she's not very uh, effusive in her praise of the film. She's very, you know, da- basic and down to earth in what she says. To, but then, of course, she's quite praiseful of uh, the Last Picture Show, and Bogdanovich, of course, is only too happy to receive uh, that acclaim, and it's uh, it's certainly uh, well deserved. It's a terrific movie, and. Uh, one that I think still plays incredibly well with lots of lots of layers and amazing cast, um, people that would go on to become huge stars um, after its release. And it was it was acclaimed at its time. It was it went into a bit of a limbo in the home video years, probably due to the many many music rights that had to be secured to get it back out. And in fact, it was I think Criterion that played a big part in its revival in the. I guess in the early '90s when it came out as a Criterion Laserdisc, and um, you know, it, it that release actually brought a lot of attention to the format because the film had been largely unavailable, and uh, it had been restored. Uh, lots of extras, commentaries, all that kind of stuff. And it, you know, bet, this is like now we're talking, you know, uh, three decades ago, and now this stuff is de rigueur on home video releases. But at the time, getting all that kind of stuff on a package was and to accompany and, and embellish a film experience was pretty a pretty new thing. So. Um, you know, Criterion do have a tradition with this film going way back, um, but now the only way you can get it from them or get their edition of it is is through this uh, Lost and Found box set, uh, and uh, it's 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 a wonderful film. Bogdanovich, um, I took a Larry McMurtry novel, I guess, and then really kind of expanded it and uh, found this amazing uh, location in Texas that really caught that kind of dusty small town off the beaten path kind of feel of. of of the town and what the young characters and, and some of the older characters who feel like they've been trapped in this town and the younger characters who want to get out, um, in the, in the early fifties, uh, the pre rock and roll years. So it's, it's, uh, it's, it's teenage life at a time before rock and roll really brought teen culture into, uh, into the mainstream and, and, uh, the lives of these characters and the, the love affairs and the disappointments and, and, uh, and, and the dreams and everything. It, it's, it's, it's a 
beautiful ensemble performance and it's a, the, in the shimmering crisp black and white and Bogdanovich, uh, it's probably the best film he ever made. Yeah, and I, I think he had to to sort of live up to that. In, in some ways, I think he and Orson Welles had a lot in common, and, I, and of course they've been connected later as well. But uh, it was great watching this movie again, and you know, I, I really appreciated that this was made came out in 1971 and the kind of seriousness with which it treats teenage life and uh, adult life and the sex and the nudity. I mean, all of it sound, it feels very, very modern, very mature and, uh, and also sort of tragic. Like it is, it is the kind of the model of the dramatic coming of age tragedy on in the cinematic trail from rebel out of cause. This is the next stop. And then you could go on to things like the river's edge um, in terms of like that, that kind of isolation and, uh, and sadness at the core of some American stories. Um, and it's a great, a great cast. Jeff Bridges, uh, Sybil Shepard, Timothy Bottoms. Um, these are all actors who went on to great careers. So uh, Ben Johnson, who won an Academy Award uh, for his part in this. Um, Cloris Leachman, you know, I mean, these are these are all people who, who uh, oh, Eileen Brennan and uh, Ellen Burstyn, who is, they're all really well, well cast and do great great things with their 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 uh their roles now um with the time that we have left um maybe we should move on and speaking of ellen burston to the final yes. film in the box set which we watched last night you've mentioned the king of marvin yes. gardens from 1972 uh which is my favorite in this group of films um and i love that it stars nicholson in maybe one of his uh most un-Nicholson-like parts where he is playing entirely against type. Uh, this and maybe about Schmidt uh, are ones I think about in terms of him dialing down his natural sort of exuberance and charisma. Uh, here he's David Stabler. He's, he's bespectacled radio jock living in Philadelphia working the late night shift. 3 a.m. storytelling. It's amazing that someone could have a job like that <laughs> uh, thinking about it now. Uh, he lives in a big house with his grandfather, and his brother, Bruce Dern, is the extroverted fast talker who wants to be a wheeler dealer, a business wizard. Jason is in jail in Atlantic City in the offseason. He gets out. Uh, he invites David to come and see him, and they're staying in a large hotel room. Uh, and uh, Jason has this this dream of a real estate deal on an island in Hawaii to build a casino and a resort. Uh, he doesn't have much money himself, but he knows a few people, including a sort of a gangster businessman played by Scatman Crothers, uh, who might be able to finance this resort dream. And, uh, yeah, so basically it's the two of them, the two brothers, and two women, Sally, played by Ellen Burstyn, who's pushing 40, and Jessica, played by Julianne Robinson, uh, an actress who had a very short career, sadly, cut short due to, uh, 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 she died at 24, I believe. Yeah. Um, she's in her early 20s, and they both these women are sort of with Jason, uh, as Jessica explains. Um, that's the uh, Julianne Robinson character. They're in a, they're a package deal. Uh, so yeah it's not a film with a lot of forward momentum but it's mostly just the four of them goofing around on the beach in the hotel and around the slightly depressed Atlantic City sites in the wintertime uh, as they wait for this the opportunity to come forward and and Jason constantly sort of like he's he's so uh he wants this so badly and he needs the support of the people around him and, and they're kind of drawn into his his personal gravity but you know we all know people like this people who are big dreamers and who talk a good game but nothing ever seems to quite work out for them yeah it's it's a great Dern performance i mean it's 
it's amazing that uh, uh, Rafelson was able to convince Nicholson to kind of not be subservient, but 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 kind of put himself, put his character on kind of a slightly lower plane than than Dern, who's a, a real whirlwind throughout this film, and and uh, it's it's a shame that uh, the film is not better known because of you know I mean Dern's getting some acclaim now. He was in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood playing. Um, the owner of the ranch, right? Where, sure. Where uh, the Manson family was was camping out, and um, you know Laura Dern, uh, of course, won an Oscar for Marriage Story, and she, you know, gave uh, appropriate props to her dad and her mom uh, for Diane Ladd, who for, was there exactly yeah. for paving the way. Um, and uh, you know, I mean, Dern has had this career of, of you know, he started off, I think, showing up in like biker films. And so on, and is known for playing kind of. And Silent Running is another uh, you know great starring role for him. Uh, the early '70s sci-fi classic uh, about you know the ecology and preserve, <laughs> preserving nature because we screwed it up on Earth so bad we have to send the remaining plants into space. Um, and Dern is the guy who's in charge of taking care of what's left of Earth's uh, greenery. Uh, you know, he he just plays. He's just like the king of playing loners and weirdos and. And, um, and here he plays, you know, a super self-confident, um, dreamer who, you know, whose reach extends his grasp in a major, major way. And, uh, and, and the way he sucks his brother back, they haven't talked in 18 months and, uh, the, you know, he has basically calls him up to bail him out of jail and then he can lay this new scheme on him, um, involving Japanese investors and, you know, getting an Island off the coast of Hawaii. And, and it's, it's, um. You know, it, it's just a it's just a whirlwind whenever he's on screen. Uh, I mean, the film does have kind of a low key feel about it, but he you know he injects so much energy into every scene that he's in. It's it's um, it, it's it. I think it balances everything out. Yeah. Um, it, I think I mentioned this last night, but I, it kind of reminds me of Bottle Rocket in a way, mm-hmm. like the the way that uh, um, uh, Owen. Um, uh, Owen, Owen Wilson. Owen Wilson. Yeah. I was going to say, I want to say Nielsen for some stupid reason. Yes. Owen, Owen Wilson's character is always like scheming and planning. And right. I, I felt like he's like a direct descendant of Bruce Dern's character here. Um, you know, plus there's that whole brother thing, which is a running theme through those Anderson films. Yeah. Uh, and, and the setting of Atlantic city, I actually watched Louis Mal's Atlantic city, um, with Burt Lancaster and Susan Sarandon not too long ago. And, and, uh, I love returning to that setting in this film. I think, I think that film takes place like a decade later. Uh, but they're great companion pieces. If you, uh, I think there's a copy of Atlantic city at the Halifax library. If you want to check it out, it's a, it's a terrific film. Um, but this film, you know, shows that the decline of Atlantic city was a long, slow, painful process. And, and we kind of see it uh, in full swing here yeah. as well. Yeah, and you know what? It's one of the things I really liked about it is the way Rafelson directs. He talked about in the extra extra uh, stuff here on the disc about how he locked down the camera for all the exterior stuff in Atlantic City. So he's having a lot of characters and things moving in the frame to keep it interesting because he makes sure the camera doesn't move on all the exterior stuff. Uh, again, he, he said he sort of connected it with the Monopoly board game. Uh, and then, <laughs> then the camera moves a lot more in the interior scenes um and it's um it is a uh, it's a film i love revisiting every time i see it i see something new oh, yeah. and and i appreciate something different and i think full marks especially to ellen burston i i don't the time we watching it this time made me realize and i guess of course seeing her in multiple roles through these films um 
seeing her again remind me what a huge talent she is and she's still working still doing great stuff uh she's really something in this yeah she uh, her performance she really is the heart and soul of the movie um as as you know basically the 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 schemes of uh of her uh, i guess boyfriend anyway of of Jason kind of kind of grind her down uh to the point where she just can't take it anymore and and uh it's you know if you haven't seen it it, it you know it is you're in for a surprise i think i think the film even even though there are aspects of it that are obviously you know early seventies things like like the radio station and so on, um, you know the you know Nicholson with his handheld tape recorder trying to record his thoughts for the show and all that while this other chaos is swirling around him. Um, but I, but I find aspects of it uh, are, are still you know just replace buying a buying a resort in Hawaii with making a computer startup or <laughs> company or something like that. You could you could have a, pr- a pretty good uh, version of the story. But um, but I think it still holds up pretty well. And, and Rafelson's direction is so subtle and so understated that, uh, yeah, the, you, you start watching the, the extras and the background characters and you see something in it every time. Well, that wraps it up for this edition of Lends Me Your Ears. It's been a lot of fun uh, revisiting the films of the BBS studio, the the, uh, the filmmakers who brought us Head and uh, Easy Rider, Five Easy Pieces. Uh, it's actually gave, gave us, us Head. head. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's, it's, a, it's still it's a bad joke, but it still kind of works. That's not as bad as my joke when the door knocked and Ellen burst in. Oh, ooh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. See, oh, yeah, that yeah. was even worse. I can feel my teeth ache. <laughs> uh, if you can get a chance to see any of these films, either in the box set or separately, I, I highly recommend it. Head got a second release on Blu-ray in a complete Monkeys TV shows box set with even more extras than are on here, if you can believe that. So either you can track it down there or here. And, um, and a lot of these films, like Five Easy Pieces and Last Picture Show, also have individual releases, Easy Rider, of course, um, all worth seeing and all worth... Um, marveling at how they really help push uh, American filmmaking in a new direction, um, both inside the studio and out. Uh, so full thumbs up from, from both of us. Yeah, and I would suggest any Rafelson film that you get a chance to see. He has all his films going through the 80s and 90s are, are quality. Almost all of them. With the Except man, maybe Man, man, man Trouble. trouble. Yeah. <laughs> that would be the one <laughs> that maybe to avoid. But yes, Blood and Wine, which I will probably get to this week. and uh, Mountains of the Moon. Black and Widow. Black Widow, yeah. Yeah. And Postman Always Rings Twice, which I didn't love, but I really feel like I need to go back and revisit that one uh, with Nicholson and Jessica Lang. My name is Stephen Cook, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. I'm Karsten Knox, and I have a Twitter account as well. Uh, it's Flaw in the Iris, named after my blog. And, of course, Lends Me Your Ears has is, uh, is got a Twitter account, too. And a Facebook page and a Patreon. So if you want to comment or give us some support, you can do that through there. And thanks, of course, to CKDU 88.1 FM for the use of their studios and the Village Soundcast Network, who put all the finishing bells and whistles on the show to make it sound so good and get it up online. Thanks to everyone, and we'll see you next time. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 